So hi everyone, welcome to the to this podcast. We're going to be talking about binge eating disorder as part of Eating Disorder Awareness Week. Um, just to um, give some warnings, some of the topics we will discuss can be triggering and sensitive. Um, and if you're triggered by any of the topics we cover, you can either reach out for support from your GP or from 111. Or also, there's some support available on the BEAT website. That's B-E-A-T. Um, if you put that into Google, you'll be able to find some support from their website. Um, we'll just start off with a round of introduction. Um, so my name's um, Rebecca. I'm a GP in um, London, and I'm part of the uh, clinical lead team for the uh, eating Community Eating Disorder Programme, which is run by Healthy London Partnership. Um, I'll hand over to um, Penny, who's also joining us. Thanks, Rebecca. So hello, everybody. I'm Penny. I'm a gastroenterologist, also working um, with Rebecca in the Adult Eating Disorder Service as one of the clinical leads. Um, I have obviously, by virtue of being a gastroenterologist, work much more in the acute sector, but have a great interest in this. Thank you. Looking forward to it. Um, hi everyone, I'm Annie. Um, I was diagnosed with binge eating disorder in February 2020 and um, I started blogging about my recovery on the fatuglyblog.com. Um, I'm also a experience practitioner working on the adult eating disorder program um, with Healthy London Partnerships. So really looking forward to this um, conversation. Thank you. Thank you Annie. And Sophie? Hello, uh, my name is Sophie. Um, I'm also a lived experience practitioner, so I have a, a binge eating disorder diagnosis. Um, I've been working with a, an eating disorder service local to me um, on, um, on, on recovery. Um, and I work with uh, Annie and Rebecca and, and, and everyone else on the um, uh, Healthy London Partnership uh, Adult Eating Disorder Pathway. Thank you, Sophie. And uh, last but not least, Do Dorothea. Um, thank you. Um, so my name is Dorothea Norton. Um, I'm a specialist eating disorders dietitian and I work in uh, one of the London services. Um, that's an all age service, both with young people and with adults um, with um, diagnosis, including eating, um, binge eating disorder. Um, and I have a specialist interest in binge eating disorder because um, prior to becoming an eating disorder specialist, I have worked as a specialist weight management dietitian in a tier three uh, weight management service. Thank you. Thank you all for introducing yourself. So I thought it would be quite useful to set the scene by talking a, a briefly generally about binge eating disorder. We might sometimes refer to it as BED. Um, so BED is a common eating disorder that affects about 0.7 to 4.3% of the population. It generally tends to affect more women than men, um, about 1.5 times more frequent um, presentation in women and usually presents from about age 20 and upwards. Um, the for, for uh, you to achieve a diagnosis of um, for someone to be diagnosed diagnosed with binge eating disorder, there are a few criteria that you have to meet. There are different um, diagnostic criteria that are used, but generally the DSM-5 criteria that we use is um, you have to have two 
three or more of the following, i.e. you have an urge to eat more rapidly than normal, eating until you become uncomfortably full, eating large amounts of food when not feeling physically hungry, um, eating alone because you feel embarrassed by it, or feeling disgusted with yourself, depressed, or very guilty after you overeat. Um, there's there are other symptoms you may present with, which is marked distress related with um, a binge eating presentation, and then it also has to occur at least once a week for three months. Um, and finally, binge eating disorder is not usually associated with um, recurrent use of inappropriate compensatory behaviour, like you would see with um, bulimia, for example. Um, um, thanks, Rebecca. I just thought it'd be worth also adding about the fact that you mentioned those prevalence figures, but uh, in terms of the practical interpretation of that, it's actually more prevalent than anorexia and bulimia. So it's actually the most prevalent out of the sort of three major eating disorders that we talk about. Um, and also that a lot of the patients don't get a diagnosis until their 40s and mid 40s. So even though often patients start presenting in their sort of early 20s, mid 20s, it usually takes a really long time to get a diagnosis and about 40% of um, individuals with a lifetime diagnosis of bed have, do never actually get treatment. So it's hugely underdiagnosed and undertreated at the moment, even though it's one of the most um, significant or prevalent eating disorders. I just thought it'd be worth mentioning that. No, I think that's a brilliant point. And um, with your in your experience of working in the service, why do you think it's usually um, for me, I would say as a doctor, I don't think it's one of the commoner um, eating disorder presentations we see or are aware of even as clinicians. Um, why do you think there's a delay in people presenting or being diagnosed in your from what you've seen in the many years you've worked in the service? I think it's a really, really difficult thing to talk about with healthcare professionals. I think there's a lot of data out there about weight stigma within healthcare settings. Um, and, and unfortunately, the, the way kind of weight is often addressed uh, within primary care um, does not enable patients to talk openly about their difficulties. Um, I think as a society, we, we shame overweight so much. And so when patients um, come to healthcare settings, they find it so incredibly difficult to talk to clinicians about the possibility of binge eating um, because they just sort of feel so awful about themselves. So I think that um, that's one of the reasons for sure in, in my experience. Thank you. Um, can I also actually bring Annie or Sophie in at this point, actually, um, to talk about their experience and their journey to being diagnosed with the condition? Um, yeah, actually, I was going to add to what Dorothea said. Um, so the, the way in which I ended up with an eating disorder service um, was that I, I actually had mentioned to my GP several times, um, you know, about how worried I was about my weight. Just to be clear, I am very overweight. I'm, um, you know, I'm that, that horrible word, obese. Um, and I had mentioned to my GP a couple of times and obviously she had advised me initially to approach the community sort of weight management side of things. Um, and eventually I, I, I sort of explained the struggles that I feel emotionally around it, around not being able to stop eating. And that's when um, 
she ended up referring me to um, to IAPT, so to the mental health team. And um, it was them that pushed, that sort of pointed me towards eating disorder. Um, so I think I think part part of that the root of that there is that it didn't occur to me that I had an eating disorder. What I thought I was and what I am is somebody who overeats and is therefore fat. Um, and I think that that's kind of what I really want to be be getting out to to more people is that. Um, like, quite frankly, you don't get to be morbidly obese without having some kind of um, really unhealthy, um, not just habits, but feelings around food um, and feelings around the way that you eat um, and why you eat. Um, so I think that it's it's about um, people, people maybe um, experiencing binge eating but they just put it down to being greedy. They don't put it down to having a binge eating disorder, at which point they don't end up with an eating disorder service. Thank you, Sophie. And can I just also find out how long did it take between you knowing or suspecting that you had, there was something not quite right to you getting a diagnosis? <laughs> I mean, I, I think I've had, I've had problems with eating since puberty. Um, and I've done secret eating for most of most of my life since then. Um, it's only been really in the last year or so that I've, since being referred to the eating disorder service, that I've started looking at, at it in that way. So we're, we're talking about most of my adult life. Thank you. Thank you, Sophie. Annie, please, would you mind chiming in and sharing your experience? Yeah, sure. I mean, I completely agree with um, what's already been said. I think from a, you know, going to a GP, I would go with lots of different or other issues. But talking about how I eat in private um, by myself is not something that I would have wanted to share um, with my GP. And I do agree that I think it's, you know, really, we live in a society where disordered eating is normal. Um, I was I went to uh, Weight Watchers with my gran when I was eight years old and it was only when I was having my um, going through my program and having my treatment um, in 2020 that I realized that in my mind at eight years old I thought my gran was taking me to go to Weight Watchers because I needed to be smaller rather than there was just no one to look after me and I was going with her and I think for my whole life it has just been I need to lose weight, I need to be smaller because being small makes me good and I want to be good. Um, and so all the messaging that we are surrounded by, you know, kind of doesn't see weight and, and if you like, just being overweight as um, a medical condition. It's actually, you know, you just need to lose weight, just, just eat eat less and exercise more and you'll be okay. Um, and if you don't do that, then you just don't have the willpower. And I think that's where the shame and the guilt and the frustrations come and it, you end up in this vicious cycle. Um, and I think for me, I never went to my GP thinking I had an eating disorder. I went after my grand passed away and I was struggling to cope um, without her here. And so I went to my GP because I felt like I was just lost and felt empty and you know I managed to get there and it was actually my GP that we had a conversation and that's what sort of led to more referrals and it kind of came up 
um, in one of my assessments that what binging disorder was. And it was actually a point when I was said, when it was said that I think if you have to, if you eat or consume 2000 calories in a short space of time, then, you know, that is a, that is one of those criterias. And um, I actually laughed because I just thought like, I consumed so much more than that in a short space of time. And I think that was when I first realized that this wasn't just a something wrong with me. It wasn't just a character flaw, but it was a real medical condition. Um, so I think from a GP's perspective, I think it's not something that people are gonna come in and just be like, oh, I think. Um, and it's not something that we tend to look at people and go, oh, they've got an eating disorder. We just think, oh, they're overweight and they they must be on a diet or they must be trying to eat, um, eat better to lose weight. So, I mean, that's been my, my journey to sort of getting a diagnosis. But it just wasn't something, I mean, I was 37 when I was diagnosed. So it was never something I felt was what I was dealing with. I just thought I needed to get myself together and lose weight through diet um, and all those programs that you try and cabbage soup diets and all those kind of things. Yeah, um, I would say, I, I think that's really good to hear from both of you, actually, Annie and Sophie. And I think it's really valuable to hear uh, how you experience that process as patients. Um, the only other thing that just occurred to me as well, that I think there are really differences in service provision. So I think often healthcare professionals are unsure whether there is a service to send patients to, um, because some some services um, do see patients with, with binge eating disorder and some, some, uh, some services don't. Uh, but I think to add to that as well, I think um, the diagnostic criteria for binge eating disorder is also quite ambiguous. So mm -hmm. sometimes as a clinician, it can be really difficult to differentiate between someone who has distinct episodes of binging associated with distress, as you outlined that diagnostic criteria, Rebecca, and people who um, sort of habitually overeat or perhaps eat emotionally. It's, it's quite a fine line and that assessment takes a really long time to sort of give patients time to to go into detail uh, for them to be comfortable to share the detail of what's going on um, and and you know in the current under the current pressures of the NHS clinician time is is very limited and so it, I think it can be very difficult to to allocate the amount of time to a patient that is needed for them to be able to disclose what's really going on for them for you to get the detail uh, or whether that patient does or doesn't um, need a referral on to the eating disorder services. So I think that's another limitation as well that might um, might be significant and that makes. Thank you. I think that's actually really helpful and um, makes it clearer. And I like your point about the uh, lack of awareness um, within primary care about services that are available and as well as awareness regarding the um, the the condition in general. Uh, Penny. Thanks, Rebecca. Um, it's been really fascinating listening listening to your accounts, actually, um, Sophie and Annie, about how you got to where you are now. Um, and, and it sounds like you had quite an insightful GP. I just wondered if you um, had any thoughts about, you know, given all the things that has been discussed so far, what could we do as healthcare professionals um, to possibly break down some of the barriers to this being discussed or or is there something that you've observed or you could think of that we could do 
to help people such as yourselves um, to actually bring this to people's attention earlier. And I guess the second part of my question was, it'd be really interesting to hear what you've done since that you have found to be helpful for you having since having had your diagnosis as well. Well, I think for me, I um, like when I so basically when I started, you know, was getting these referrals and assessments, my mindset was actually this is going to this is like I'm really working with professionals to lose weight. And even though I was still like, OK, I've got an eating disorder, my focus was still on I need to lose weight and this is going to help me. And um, what I realized when I went through my program is um, that there are certain how do I put it, like just certain tools, which is what we were kind of taught through that program that I feel that if I had known these things when I was younger, even outside the context of having an eating disorder or outside of anything to do with, you know, a weight management program, they're actually tools that help me to manage life. Um, and I feel that there are, like for me personally, I feel like they might be assumed that as you get older and as you grow, you just learn these things. But for me, I didn't. So it might be a suggestion might be that these kind of tools are actually offered to people just as almost like a, a self-help tool a lot younger. Um, because, you know, and, and it's not just around food. That's what I realized. It's like, for example, I learned about the need for boundaries. I learned about the fact that I have needs and it's not just about meeting everyone else's needs, but it's knowing what mine are. Um, some people may grow up and learn this stuff just maybe because of the environment they grow up in. But I, I went to the program, it was like my eyes were opened. So that's just one thing I would say I don't think that these these are tools for me that really changed my life and really helped me in my recovery. Um, and maybe if they were available um, from the NHS and, and really helped people in that way when we, when I was younger, I might not be where I, where I got to. Um, and the other thing what I did is when I finished my program, I actually created a recovery guide for myself initially to really highlight those things in the program that like really helped me and that I wanted to remember and I did it in a way that was engaging, um, that was colourful, that you know I could refer to very easily um, and I have like almost like a reference guide if you like anytime I'm feeling a certain way I can refer to it um, and that's one of the things I put on my website for people to download free because I felt that these were life-changing tools that if I had known this stuff when I was younger I may have not got to where I was. Thank you, Annie. Um, Sophie? Yeah, thanks. Um, Penny, your question has really kind of made me made me think about the um, the challenge that um, people with 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 BED um, face um, and the way that it's a really it's really complex how to help us. Um, because especially for someone like me who presents with binge eating um, behavior um, disorder and also um, just generally overeats and is therefore very overweight is that every single healthcare professional except for the ones in the eating disorder unit will tell you to lose weight that you need to lose weight um, I know that I need to lose weight I've known that since I was a 
you know, eight years old. Um, I haven't been able to consist, you know, to keep the weight off for most of, you know, for all of that time. Um, and the first time in my life that I'm getting help with my eating, the message is you are not here to lose weight. You're here to control your binge eating. Um, and I think um, Annie and I have talked about before about how that can sometimes that that without the right kind of support that can actually be extremely um, distressing <laughs> because um, you know I I'm in I, I'm in my mid thirties now um, I've been overweight for my, my most of my life as I've mentioned and um, if I don't lose weight it will um, I will die early. I mean, that's, you know, I'm being dramatic there, but, you know, ultimately that's what the medical, um, the, the medical community thinks and what they, you know, the, 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 the message that I'm getting. So when I go to the eating disorder service and the, um, the sort of, the, the NHS line is that treating binge eating disorder will not likely result in a loss of weight. Um, there needs to be within that a plan which is which supports the patient to go on from the beating the binge eating disorder to sort out the binge eating and then to go on afterwards to um, a weight management service with with a view to do whatever it takes to lose the weight that you need to lose to lose for your own health outcomes. Um, and that's really, you know, if you don't have both of those things, mm -hmm. you can't go to tier, you can't go to weight management service without dealing with your binge eating and you can't deal with your binge eating without then dealing with your general eating habits and your general dietary habits and the, you know, with a view to actually getting to a healthier weight. Um, and that's really, I've been really lucky with my experience because um, I ended up in a service where thankfully my dietitian had that view and has the, the knowledge to um, uh, to be able to tell me what is and isn't available and to plan for the next step. Um, but I know that not, that doesn't happen with everyone. So that's the answer to your question, Penny. To, to help people like me, there needs to be a view of not just this one diagnosis, but the whole, you know, getting this person healthy. Thank you, Sophie. And um, I, I think we, that came across when I was listening to conversation between yourself and Annie a couple of weeks ago about um, the stark difference in care and the traumatic um, experience someone with um, binge eating disorder has when they're told not to lose weight and some of them inevitably gain weight and that's actually more distressing and triggering. So I wanted to bring Dorota in on that point, how um, Sophie spoke about the care she received and how that was managed effectively. It would be good to actually also hear Annie's perspective of how her treatment looked and the management of that of her weight while she was starting CBT. And then Dorota, if you can add into what you think gold standard should be and what we should be working towards. So Annie, do you want to come in first, please? Yeah, I mean, I um, I was that person who gained weight um, while I was going through my recovery and 
or going through the program and actually I got to a point I think it was around week five of my 12-week program where I was binging worse than before um, and it was just fortunate that the um, program was online because I don't think if it had been in person I would have been able to get out of bed because I was in bed for three days just binging straight and I think it was that that feeling of like it's easy to say you know no don't binge and don't restrict because that was the thing I never really thought about was the restriction side um, because I used to fast so that kind of really helped my I guess my my weight in a way um, for like spiritual reasons but the fasting helped me so when I was told I wasn't allowed to restrict and if you have a binge you just ignore that you've had a binge and you keep eating consistently I gained weight and that mentally made the whole thing even worse um, and I think sometimes obviously things sometimes have to get worse before they get better but that was probably a turning point in my whole process but it did because I was just told you no know, you just don't need to consider like you shouldn't even be thinking about losing weight yet at least until six months after um, and when I did mention it again, I was advised to, you know, after six months, you know, maybe try something like Weight Watchers, which for me is a trigger because Weight Watchers was where it all started. So um, I think it's also understanding that um, for me, it's about finding a, a recovery focused way of actually talking about weight loss. Um, and I agree with Sophie. I mean, I was was only reviewing recently what I was meant to have received in the service, and I was meant to have had sessions with the dietitian. Um, and I realised I didn't have any of those. I was meant to have up to six, and I didn't have any. Um, so I look back on my experience, and although the treatment has helped me, I do wonder if I'd have received that whether I wouldn't have gained the weight that I have. And actually, I don't have that. I'm now trying to still figure out how do I lose weight even though I'm no longer binging and I no longer have the distress that I used to have. So um, I think that's kind of how like that's been my experience um, and I do think it's, it is distressful and it does add to the problem and you end up increasing the shame because you're in this group with other people and you feel like I don't want to talk about losing weight because it's like a no-no you shouldn't talk about it but actually this is a big thing for me. So you're still holding back stuff um, and you're still holding that shame and you're still feeling guilty for feeling and thinking the things you think. Um, and so, yeah, so that was my my experience. So it'd be interesting to hear what Dorothea has to say about that. Thanks, Anna. Um, and I know the amount of weight you did gain during that period was really um, alarming for you. Um, I also want to emphasise the fact that um, Sophie and Annie received services from London teams, but in different areas, and that's some of the work we've been trying to do together as a team. I, myself, Annie, Sophie and a few other LexPs and um, Penny and other providers to try and reduce var variation i.e. the difference in the service that people will receive based on their postcode. So it would actually be good for Dorita to, because before we met, Sophie spoke about the amazing work you did with her, um, but also it would be good for you to share from your experience what good looks like and what we should be aiming for as a, as a, um, as a region. Thanks, Dorita. 
Um, thank you. So um, again, fascinating hearing your stories, and I think it's it's something really powerful about listening to patients because Sophie, you mentioned about you, you know when you said the reality is I will I will die sooner, uh, and I think you know we know that because the, it, it, you know NHS publishes figures about the idea that patients with a BMI over 45 are likely to lose eight years of their lives. And, and when we hear those figures and apply them to actual people, that's what the reality is. And that is why we can't just ignore um, that actually this is a really complex condition. And I wonder if it's worth us kind of going back to what you were both referring to um, and why you're being advised that you should ignore the weight. Um, so currently the National Institute for Health and care excellence, so the NICE guidelines for the treatment of binge eating disorder, do state very clearly that patients should be advised that the treatment is unlikely to result in weight loss and that they should give up dieting for the time being. Um, and so how those guidelines are being interpreted by most services is, is in a sort of really straightforward way that patients are advised to, to just park that and um, this is not an aim or an objective of their treatment. However, the reality is that when um, by the, you know, when we talked a little bit earlier about that delayed diagnosis that most pa patients will go through half their adulthood with binge eating disorder before they find themselves in treatment. And so often the consequence of that is that obesity have already developed and without intervention, uh, it is not going to go away. We also know if we look at separate NICE guidelines for the treatment and management of obesity is that healthcare professionals are actively advised to take every opportunity they have when they meet a patient to weigh them, to calculate their BMI and to advise them on their risk based on their BMI and support them to go into weight management. So you can see how <laughs> obviously Annie and Sophie sort of are the living example of how this happens, um, that they are being told one thing by one service and yet when they eventually get to eating disorder services to address their binge eating disorder, they're being told something else. Um, and I think it's very difficult because you know, eating disorder services are are um, hugely overwhelmed, and I think COVID has been has been really tough. Um, I think we produced some um, some studies um, on uh, the the level of increase that services have seen, um, and often the services have to manage immediate risks. Um, so they have to manage patients who are at risk now of the health consequences of their eating disorder, and therefore there is often a prioritization and the focus on patients with anorexia, um, whereas patients with binge eating disorder or obesity are, have to be classed as routine um, and therefore are often sort of waiting for longer or perhaps dietetic care is prioritised to um, patients who uh, have a diagnosis of anorexia and not so much, not so much binge eating disorder. So I guess my vision um, on, and how um, how those NICE guidelines could be interpreted is not to ignore the weight, is to really talk about it openly um, because pretending that it's not there and it's not an issue is just not an option. It is an issue, it is there and our patients know it. Um, so not to ignore the weight because we know that um, our patients are living with it all day every day um, and Unfortunately, unless we are able to integrate that part of their care into our treatment, um, they're likely to come up against difficulties as soon as they leave our service for the reasons that I have mentioned. Um, 
So whilst we have to accept that within eating disorder services, our function is not to support patients with weight management, I believe that binge eating disorder treatment should be part of an integrated care pathway that works jointly with services um, within, within um, primary care, but also within tertiary care. So with complex weight management services, tier three services or tier four bariatric services. And I think weight should be discussed with the patients at assessment to think about what it is that they want. And, you know, some patients might say, you know what, I'm really distressed by binging, but my weight is fine um, and I don't want to go on to that. But some patients will say, actually, I have a body mass index of, you know, over 50. Um, realistically, I need to have bariatric surgery um, to be able to address that. And we should therefore support our patients by developing those integrated care pathway, care pathways by liaising with um, specialist weight management services, by liaising with the bariatric services to make sure that we link in with them. They don't have to forget about the idea of health um, and being a healthy weight. This is the first step in a journey as opposed to the whole thing with everyone ignoring the, the rest of their difficulties. Does Thank that make you. sense? Yes, it does. It does. I think Penny's hand went up while you were talking, so um, it would be good to hear from her. Thanks. Um, thank you very much. It uh, it really has been really interesting listening um, to, to you guys talking and um, just a few things that you mentioned I thought was, you know, was really interesting. And um, just going right back to the beginning when you were talking about um, learning about some tools that actually were useful for all sorts of things, not necessarily just relating to sort of binge eating disorder, but other things in terms of life management, I suppose. Um, I just wondered, I was just, it'd be really interesting to hear from you. Um, just going back to, again, you know, what's been discussed that, you know, the services, the sort of the formal services are often quite overwhelmed and people don't get to them in, in good time and all the rest of it. I wondered if you, um, what, what, what you thought um, might be helpful in terms of either talking to others who also have been binge eating disorders and whether you found this helpful or not, but also interested in how you, um, how you found um, attitudes of friends and family, or was it something that you just did not feel that you could ever sort of talk about with them? And really, I guess just sort of thoughts from you guys about what could be different in the future to help people who know they have a problem, they may not necessarily know what the problem is, and how um, how this population earlier on could, could be helped without even before you even get to any of the formal services. Annie, do you want to take that first, please? Sure. Um, okay, so I think, first of all, in terms of like speaking to other people, um, what I found when I did Google, did a Google search is that um, I didn't really find a lot of personal stories about people who had experienced binge eating disorder, which is part of the reason why I was really keen for us to get this out there more. Um, and what I did find was a lot of people who may binge eat, but not necessarily have an eating disorder. And one of the, I think for me, was quite an alarm bell after I had my um, treatment was just that actually a lot of those stories were people who were saying that professional help doesn't work 
Um, so that kind of was quite alarming to me. Um, actually having a diagnosis helped me to reach out for support from my family and friends, very close family and friends, I should say, not any and anyone. Um, and I found that actually they were really supportive, even some who didn't really understand it, they still offered that support. And I actually had friends during my program where after like my sessions, I would they would call me because they want a number one check I was okay, but also want to find out what I'm learning um, and the impact it's having and you know, and were there for me through it. So I did actually get a lot of support from people who were close to me. Um, so I think that that the, the big I would say I mean the face of eating disorders I think doesn't really include binge eating disorder in terms of what you see so I would say that for people to identify and even sort of see things early is very difficult um, and so in terms of how do you do that I think it's you have to understand where people's minds are you know for me like I said I wasn't looking to be diagnosed with an eating disorder I was looking to lose weight so it's actually I suppose being a bit more proactive in what how does I guess healthcare professionals work with other maybe external organizations to support people with their weight and be able to identify things earlier and give them the support that they need if I hope that does make sense um yes. and then, yes. Yeah, I hope that does make sense. <laughs> it does, Amy. Okay. All right. Yeah. So I think that's yeah, that's kind of my experience. I actually then want to pick up on something that Annie pointed out. She mentioned, but I wonder whether we could delve deeper into um, your thoughts about um, cultural differences and BD in different cultures. You mentioned that you fast and you wasn't allowed to fast and you fast as part of um, a spiritual practice. Um, could you talk more about that and also whether um, you felt that the program met your needs as someone from a, uh, from a Black Caribbean heritage? Thank you, Annie. Uh, yeah, I mean, I, I, start, I think I started fasting um, like 20, in 2013, I think, and I started just doing juice fast it was part of my you know church practice that we did um and then i would do sort of where you cut out certain foods and you'd fast for 21 days and i think by the time i got to 20 uh 14 50 15 i was doing like 40 day fast where i wouldn't eat until six i did a 50 day fast where i didn't even have water until six um for 50 days and I, I, on, I actually believe that that sort of obviously didn't help because that was just before I sort of came back to London and, you know, my grand passed away and things. And the thing with the spiritual practice is that I used to fast because when I fasted, it was like I was kind of saying, I can't do this or whatever it was that was going on in my life. And I was kind of saying, oh, God, I need you to help me. And it was that sort of like, like putting myself aside so that God could move. So then coming into um, a program where I was told you shouldn't restrict and you have to eat three meals a day, there's that part of you that thinks, if I'm not fasting, am I not having enough faith in God? Um, and that again, it's another thing that I think, I don't know if it's fully understood that the impact that that can have, because you're almost like a lone ranger now, you feel like you're kind of saying, God, you're not enough. 
Um, and that's something else emotionally and mentally that I have to deal with. So um, that was a challenge in terms of not fasting. Um, and what I had to do, even after, you know, I'd stopped binging, is I recognised that, you know what, fasting is part of my life. And as I've gone on like over a year now with, no, with you know, in recovery, that I have to almost shape it for myself. And I'm very careful about how I fast. Um, I don't fast for the length of times that I used to. Um, and my whole mindset around fasting is very different. Um, but yeah, that's kind of when it comes to, to the fasting, that's, that was my experience. Um, but also from a cultural perspective, I think, you know, in my in the program I went through, um, I well first of all I'll say when I went to my GP it was actually a black woman and I often asked myself if it wasn't a black woman would I be where I am now? Um, would I have said what I said? Would I have had the conversations I had? Um, and even when I was getting the time from work to be able to do the program, I was dealing with a black man who was my occupation in occupational health. So there was, I do wonder, would it have been the same? Um, and would I be where I am? Um, um, but one thing I often, I do say is that as a black British person, I have learned to just go with fit into structures. I fit into whatever, you know, the role plays, the examples, the exercises, even if they don't reflect my cultural experience. Um, so one, again, one example I would give is we were, for example, talk, talking about assertiveness and it was about how, you know, you have to assert your needs and therefore you talk to, if, if your parent, if you need to assert your needs to your parent, you would go and your practices that you would go and do it. But it's, does the service take into account the understanding that in my culture, there's another barrier to me even being able to approach an elder in my community or an elder or a parent in that way and saying, these are my needs. Like they look at me like, are you crazy? Are you actually talking to me this way? So it's, I think it's not necessarily that there's anything wrong. I just think that there needs to be more understanding in terms of what you're asking people to do and the impact it can have. And also just some of those role plays and exercises. Like I can do a role play. I'm used to doing a role play that doesn't reflect anything I would ever do. Um, but maybe they do need to reflect my my background. And I think that's why, you know, for me, being a lived experience practitioner is so important because it's having a voice to look and review some of these things and say, actually, yes, we can work with it, but why should we? Why shouldn't the things we're given, the handouts we're given, the exercises we have to do, why shouldn't it reflect our experience as well? Um, so, you know, I've had, I had a very good experience going through my program. I mean, 40% of the people in my group were actually black women over 30. So it demonstrates that there is a need, um, but I just think that there are improvements that can be made. Thank you. Thank you, Annie. Um, so I know our time's fast spent and I thought it would be quite good to see if we could um, go around and um, give one way we feel that the service or um, the provision of care around eat and um, binge eating disorder could change. What would we like it to look like? Can I start with Dorothea and then we'll go around? 
Thank you. Thank you. I think for me, it would be the key word would be integrated pathways um, of, you know, treating um, binge eating disorder that's presenting comorbid with complex weight management difficulties as the complex condition that it is. Uh, and that would mean working closely with um, services where uh, our patients might present initially. So, for example, diabetes services or the sleep clinics or pain clinics or tier three weight management services, bariatric services, establishing close links so that those services would refer and screen for binge eating disorder uh, and refer them to eating disorder services and vice versa so that when patients complete their treatment within the eating disorder service, they can then be signposted back to appropriate services that will understand their complexities and will help them and support them through their journey so that they receive a holistic treatment that addresses both their physical and their mental health needs. Thank you, um, Doritha. Um, Sophie? I'm afraid I'm going to be really dull and say that I just would like to repeat everything that Dorothea just said. Yeah. Um, I think it's just so important to get that, um, that journey right. Um, and to not leave patients hanging after being um, after accessing one one service, you know, I mean, the, the NHS is wonderful, but the you know the the fact is that some of the services work in quite uh, siloed ways, uh, and you know, really having a more holistic view of of a patient and guidelines on how to move between the services is is just so important. Thank you, Sophie. Annie, I know you just spoken but please can you just give us uh, uh, yeah well I mean obviously I would echo what Sophie and um, Dorothea said um, but I also would add when it comes to sort of follow up um, after you've been through your program or your treatment um, I was kind of officially discharged um, but I haven't heard anything since then over a year um, so I think following up on people who have been through the program and supporting them us afterwards is I think is also really important um, and I would also like to just add I think it was a point that was raised before about um, you know in terms of anorexia and how serious it's it's in terms of the I guess it's a bit like inequality really it's Anorexia is a really serious thing and it's treated this way. Binge eating disorder is, you know, routine. Um, as someone with binge eating disorder that was also suicidal, I think it's also just as important. Um, and it's 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 still life and death um, in, in very extreme cases. So I think I would think awareness of what it really means, what it really looks like and what the darkness of it can be. Um, is really important for people to understand and so that there isn't that inequality that if you've got anorexia it's more you know serious than if you've got binge eating disorder. Yeah I think that's a very valid point point. Um, and Penny please. Thank you Rebecca I mean it's been a really fascinating and um, very educational discussion for me I think I was just reflecting on um, um, us as healthcare professionals and maybe just the, the the structure of the way that we work and are possibly um, encouraged to work and in a very sort of target driven way and interestingly although they're very very different um, 
conditions um just thinking about the whole weight thing and and that i think people suffer from the you know the sort of the emphasis on a number at both ends um both probably both at anorexia and the binge eating disorder and i think the thing that i've really taken away from this and um is that yes you may be able to identify people who are in trouble at either end of that spectrum but actually i think maybe one thing that we do which is um which is which is not not good and something that we all could do with working on i think is perhaps identifying people who who might be in difficulty but actually then focusing very much on the relationship with eating and the relationship with food rather than a number um and starting from that perspective and and really exploring you know what 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 people's priorities are and obviously i agree completely with everything else that's been said as well in terms of integrated pathways and not sort of abandoning people along the way um but i think just right up at the beginning if we can break down some barriers by just actually attempting to understand our patients uh, and people who approach us better um about where what 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 is troubling them and what 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 um what we can do to help rather than just focusing on purely on a number and how we can drive that down or up and which they're at. Thank you. Thanks, Benny. Again, fantastic points. Um, and I think finally for me, what um, I would like to see changes, I can speak from my perspective. I've been a GP for over 10 years and I don't think I've ever diagnosed or referred anyone um, or anyone's ever presented to me with um, symptoms of binge eating disorder. Um, so I guess, but I won't know whether it's because of lack of awareness before I started working in this area. So I think a key thing for me that I would like changing is increased awareness in primary care and increased awareness of the availability of support services and also actually the way we manage people with dual diagnosis. Um, I think what's come out is the fact that um, over 40%, up to 40% of people with binge eating disorder can also have obesity and we need a um, dual approach to manage both of them. And also actually trying to reduce the variation. I think it, it, the fact that Sophie's treatment is completely different from Annie's treatment also is something that I think I would like to see um, uh, changing as we go forward. Um, so um, that brings us to the end of this um, podcast. Um, I want to thank Sophie and Annie for sharing intimate details of their experience, their treatment and something that's personal, but you've taken um, the time and also trusted us with this information. So thank you for coming along. Um, also, Dorothea, thank you for coming to share your wealth of experience and knowledge. Um, I also want to um, signpost anyone that's been triggered by this, the topics we've spoken about to get further support from your GP or 111. And also BEATS is a charity, an eating disorder charity that has a lot of resources and has a helpline that can also support. Uh, thank you.